to the notes to Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to continue today uh, our study in the supremacy of the Son of God studies in Hebrews. Uh, this is our week number five, um, and we're going to continue studying today on how Christ is superior. Um, again, as we mentioned in the last few weeks, um, the author of Hebrews wrote that book to uh, the Jews who um, wanted to go back to Judaism after they became Christian. So the author of Hebrews wrote this book to them to tell them that Jesus is superior. And this way he's encouraging them not to go back to the things that are less superior than Christ. The first four weeks we have been talking about verses 1 to 3, how Jesus is superior than the prophets. Today we're going to focus on verse 4 and 5. And we're going to start talking about how Jesus is superior than the angels. I, I want to read the whole chapter, chapter 1, with you. Because I want you to get a bigger picture of how the argument of the author of Hebrews is going. And then we'll just zoom in on verses uh, 4 and 5. So Hebrews 1 goes as follows. God who at various times, I'm reading from the New King James uh, Version. God who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his son whom he has appointed heir of all things through whom he has made the worlds who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged us from our sins, sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. And that's where we stopped last week, right? Now we're going to start from verse 4. Jesus, who sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, okay, now he's linking that to, having become so much better than the angels by the mere fact that he now is sitting at the right hand of majesty on high, okay? as he has by inheritance obtained a more ex excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son today, I have begotten you, okay? And again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. That's a second quote from the Old Testament. So he quoted one and then and again another quote. And then now he's moving on to the third quote from the Old Testament. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he said that the, all the angels of God worship him. That's a third quote from the Old Testament. Now, fourth quote from the Old Testament, verse 7. And of the angel, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers flame of fire. Now we're going to move to quote number 5, verse 8. And to the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A specter of righteousness is the specter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Now, quote number six in verse 10. And you, Lord, ha um, in the beginning has laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they will uh, grow old like a garment. Like a clock, you will fold them up, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will never fail. And then the quote number seven from the Old Testament, but to which of the angels he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Verse 14, are, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who will inherit salvation? Amen. Amen. 
So again, uh, verses 1 to 3, it, it, the author of Hebrews is talking about how Jesus is superior than the prophets. We talked about a superior message and a superior messenger. Now, from verse 4, chapter 1, verse 4, all the way till the end of chapter 2. So this is almost two chapters here in the book of Hebrews. That the author of Hebrews is arguing how Jesus is superior to the angels. Verse 4, for me, serves like a, a transition or um, an introduction to the idea that he's going to discuss for the remaining of chapter 1 and the whole chapter 2. And then the author of Hebrews is arguing that Jesus is superior than the angel in two main points. Number one, demonstrated by the Old Testament. So he's showing even from the Old Testament that Jesus, as the Son of God, is superior than the angels. And that's pretty much chapter 1, verse 5, all the way to verse 14, that whole passage that we just read. The author of Hebrews is proving from the Old Testament that the Son is superior. And then... Start chapter 2, the first four verses, he just give a warning of abandoning the call and the message of Christ. Remember, do you want to go back? So he's giving them a warning. And then um, chapter 2, verse 5 to verse 18, till the end of chapter 2, the author of Hebrews is arguing that Jesus is superior than the angel and that the angels and that is demonstrated by his humanity. Even though Jesus became human, uh, that, in a way, is the reason why he is superior. So that's pretty much <clears throat> the, 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 the thought process, the thought flow for the author of Hebrews from chapter 1, verse 4, all the way to the end of chapter 2. So we're going to break that down and try to analyze more what he's saying. Again, verse 4 is just kind of like a transition. Look at the text. Jesus, at the end of chapter at the end of verse 3, he has been lifted up. He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. So he's so high. Now that he's that high, he's linking that to that thought. Jesus, who was lifted up to be all the way up at the right hand of God, is far much higher and far more exalted than all the angels. Because Jesus now is a whole lot more superior than they are. As he also by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than, than they. And then in order to back up his argument that Jesus now has become much better than the angel, more, far more superior than the angel, the author of Hebrews quoted seven different verses, scriptures from the Old Testament to back up his argument that he's presenting in verse 4 that the son is far much better and a whole lot superior than the angels. You guys follow? Yeah. So it's it's really like, a, a, for me, an amazing transitioning thought from how the son who came all the way down to purge us from our sins was lifted all the way up above all the angels. And now he, from that point forward, presenting arguments from the Old Testament that, that the son is superior than the angels. Remember when we talked about Jesus superior than the prophet last week, we talked about seven different descriptions of the son that the author of Hebrews has presented to tell us that the son is superior than the prophets. You remember that last week? It's for me very symmetric how he presented seven different descriptions of the son being superior than the prophets and now he's presenting seven different scriptures from the Old Testament that the son is superior than the angels. So that, that, there's symmetry here in the way he's trying to present his argument. Seven descriptions, Jesus is superior than the prophet. Seven verses, Jesus is superior than the angels. If you follow his uh, thought process in from verse 
5 or 4, 5, all the way to the end, the author of Hebrews is arguing from the Old Testament that the Son is superior than the angels for these four main reasons. Number one, he has a superior name. And that's what he talks about in verse 4 and 5, right? And then he says that the Son is superior because actually the angels worship him. And that's in verse 6. Now, I don't know about you, but if you worship somebody, this somebody is a whole lot greater than you are. Amen? And that's what he's saying here, that the angels worship the Son. Therefore, the Son is definitely superior than the angels. And then in verse 7 to 12, he's arguing that the Son is God in his nature. He's equal to the Father in his very nature. And he quoted the Old Testament to support that very argument. And if the Son is God in his nature, therefore, he must be superior than the angels. Amen? And the fourth argument that he's presenting, and that's the last two verses, is 13 and 14. The Son is Master, Lord, but the angels are servants. So for, this is what I'm thinking so far. I haven't studied the whole chapter yet, so we might modify that as we go forward. But so far, as of now, this is how I see the author of Hebrews is presenting his argument just based on the Old Testament scripture, how the Son is superior than the angels. Amen? So let's zoom in today on verse 4 and verse 5. That's where we're going to uh, stop today. Verse 4, having become so much better than the angel, in as much as by inheritance he obtained um, a more excellent name than they are. If you guys remember, the first week we said that verse 1 to verse 4 is actually one sentence in the Greek. So from the time he said, God who's in time past, that's one sentence, ends at... Jesus has obtained a more excellent name than they. That even has uh, had some Bible commentators arguing that this verse 4 here is the eighth description of how exalted the Son has become. Remember we talked about seven last week? Some might argue that this actually belonged to the previous uh, thought and that the Son was exalted all the way up and he has become much uh, greater and much better than the angels. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean... Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's up to you how you want to understand it. I think both are valid. And the fact that verse 4 actually belong to the same sentence, like verse 1 and 3 in Greek, tells me that this is the same thought. This is the same idea that he's talking about. I still see it as more of a transitioning phrase. He's trying to ease us into the second argument. But the way you look at it, it doesn't really matter. But I think they're both correct. The argument here, the idea here, what the author of Hebrews is telling us, that the Son became all the way down, and then he was lifted all the way up to the right hand of majesty, far much better than the angels, is almost parallel, identical, to what Paul told us in Ephesians 1, 19 to 20. Talking about the power of the resurrection of Christ, which we're going to celebrate next week. And he's saying that the working of his mighty power, God's the Father mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him up from the dead and seated him at the right hand uh, in the heavenly places. Remember, he sat at the right hand of majesties in Hebrew. Here he's, he sat at the right hand in the heavenly places. Verse 21, far above all principalities and power and might and dominion and every name to be named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Do you guys see that the thought is almost identical between Ephesians 1, 19 to 20 and Hebrews 1, 3 and 4, right? Christ who came all the way down was lifted all the way up far above all the angels and all names and dominions um, and every name to be named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. 
Now, let's just zoom in the wording here and try to look into every word that the author of Hebrews has said. He started by saying that Jesus having become, or he became so much better than the angels, right? So when he said he has become, or he became, is the author of Hebrews here talking about something new stage that the son has acquired, or he's talking about his original condition status. He has become so much more than the angels. What does that mean? That this is a new status, a new place that the son has attended because he was put down all the way down to purge us from our sins. And then he was lifted up to the right hand of majesty on high. When he did that, when he was lifted up to that point, he attained a new status, which is he has become far much better than the angels. You guys follow me? Right? This is a new thing that the son has acquired. Kind of similar to what Paul was saying, that Jesus sat at the right hand of majesty far above all the angels and the dominions and power. It's the same thing. It's a new status that the Son has acquired after he died for us on the cross and was lifted up on high. Now, again, so the, the, the author of Hebrews here, when he said he has become far much better than the angels, is not talking about the, the Son eternal superiority over the angels. You guys with me? He's talking about a new temporary, that after his temporary humility and humanity, now he has been exalted to a new place that he has acquired, which is now he has become far much better than the angels. Amen? And now let's talk about he has become far much superior or better than the angel. The Greek word here is definitely better, uh, not just superior, but better. And this is one of the words that the author of Hebrews favors uh, throughout his epistle. He used it 13 times. It makes sense. Remember his argument that Christianity, New Testament, the Bible, um, under, under Christ's covenant is a whole lot superior than the Old Testament. So it makes sense that you always say the New Testament is better, the ministry is better, salvation is better. Everything in the New Testament is better than that is which is under the Old Testament. For example, we read about, um, he mentioned it here in Hebrews 1.4, that the son has become better than the angels. But also in 6.9, we read about better things. In 7.7, 7, we read about how Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And he said that the less is blessed by that better. Melchizedek, the high priest, is better than Abraham in that way because he blessed him. In, ver in chapter 7, verse 19, we read about the better hope. In verse 22 of chapter 7, we read about a better covenant. And in 8.6, so I think twice he mentioned a better covenant in 7.22 and 8.6. He talks about better promises in chapter 8, verse 6. He talks about better sacrifices in chapter 9, verse 23. He talks about better position in chapter 10, verse 34. Uh, and then he talks about better country, better eternity in uh, chapter 11, verse 16. He talks about better resurrection than thus that of the Old Testament in chapter 11, verse 36. And he talks about better things for the New Testament believers than the Old Testament believers in chapter 11, verse 40. And then he talks about the blood of Jesus, talks about better things than the blood of Abel in chapter 12, verse 24. All in all, 13 times the author of Hebrews is using the word better to, to, to again emphasize his point, the superiority of the New Testament, the superiority of Christ over the Old Testament. Amen? Now, Jesus have become, this is a new thing that he has acquired after his ascension on high, better than the angels. Why bring the angels into that 
uh, into that argument. Here is, here is a very good idea, good way of looking at it. The prophets were God's spokesmen in the Old Testament, right? But also the angels were God's spokesmen as well in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, the whole Old Testament is characterized either, or as either prophetic or angelic. God sent his messages in the Old Testament one of two ways, either through prophets or through angels. That's the only two ways God would speak in the Old Testament. The author of Hebrews, we're going to read about him later on in chapter 2, verse 2. He says that, if the word spoken through angels, God holds to be in a high value. That's chapter 2, verse 2. And when he says the word spoken through angels, he's really referring to the whole Old Testament. And he's using that phrase, the word spoken through angels, to talk about uh, the Old Testament. Right? So that tells you how angels are important. God used angel to communicate his message. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us that the law was mediated by the angels. The angels were the middle person who brought the law from God to Moses a couple of times. Galatians 3.19 and Acts 7.53. We'll read that. That the angels are the mediator who brought the law to Moses. We don't know how God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, but obviously from Galatians and Acts here, it might be that angels were mediator in that process and they brought the commandment to Moses. So by pairing the prophets and the angels together, the author of Hebrews here in chapter 1 and 2 is arguing that Jesus still as our spokesman, the one through whom God has spoken, is superior than all God's spokesmen in the Old Testament, whether they're human like the prophet or not human like the angels. Amen? So that's why he brings the angel into the argument. And then it says that he has obtained by inheritance a more excellent name than they are. The idea here, here again, let me ask you, he has obtained by inheritance. Does that tell you guys that this is something Jesus already possessed? Oh, this is something new that Jesus has acquired when he was lifted up to the right hand of majesty. It is something new, right? It is something new Jesus has obtained. That more excellent name is something uh, that Jesus was given to, or was given to Jesus by inheritance because he has fulfilled the plan of salvation because he died and rose again. Amen? goes very much in line when it says that he having become better than the angels. Again, the whole verse here, verse 4, is talking about new conditions, new status that Jesus has was given by the Father because he has fulfilled the plan of salvation. It's not talking about his eternal conditions as the Son who's superior than the angel. He's talking about different kind of superiority that the Son has gotten because he came all the way down to perform the plan of salvation. You guys with me? Good so far? Okay, so let's move on. What is that thing that Jesus was given? He was given a more excellent name than they are. So what is that name that Jesus was given? We, there's roughly a parallel to that. It's not the same thing. A more parallel to that, though, in Philippians chapter 2, when it talks about Jesus, how he was in the very nature of God, he came down, was obedient to the point of death, the death of the cross, and then it says, Therefore God also has lifted him up, right? And did what after that? And given him the name. This is not in the notes, you guys. I'm sorry. And giving him the names that is above 
every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So there are some other scripture that teaches us that because Jesus came down to the cross and then was lifted up to the right hand of God, he was given a name. I don't think it's the same name, but the teaching is still pretty much the same. You guys follow me? So what is the name here that the author of Hebrews is referring to in chapter, in verse 4, when he says that Jesus has obtained by inheritance a more excellent name than they are? Let's flip back to the text and look at that. So verse 4, having become far much better than the angel, and as much as by inheritance he obtained a more excellent name than they are, right? What is the very first word in chapter, in verse 5? Four, right? Four. You guys with me? What does the word four usually mean? It, it links two things together. When he starts verse four by saying four, that means verse five here is going to explain what he was just talking about in verse four. You guys with me? He's not just now stopped his thought at verse four, and now he's starting a brand new idea in verse five. He's linking verse five to verse four. You guys with me? He's saying that more excellently in that Jesus has uh, obtained because he died on the cross. Here it is. You want to know what it is? Here it is. For, here's the explanation that Jesus has a more excellent name. To which of the angels here say, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And again, so he's using now two different scriptures to back up that idea that Jesus has obtained a more excellent name. And again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. So verse 5 explained to us what he was trying to say in verse 4. You're with me? Yeah. So what is it the more excellent name that you think the son has acquired here after his ascension on high? Surprisingly, verse 5 tells us that that name is son. Son. Well, but wait a minute. This is really, really confusing now. You guys with me? The author of Hebrews already told us in chapter 1, verse 2, we just read it, that God has spoke to us in his Son through whom he has made the worlds, right? We just read that in verse 2. So the author of Hebrews knows that Jesus is the Son, creator of everything, right? Jesus is the Son by whom God made the worlds, right? Not, not to mention that later on in, in Hebrews 5, 8, here's what the author of Hebrews said. Through, though he was a Son... Yet he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. That's during his time on earth, during incarnation, right? So the author of Hebrews is telling us he knows for sure that Jesus was the eternal son of God. And even during his incarnation, he also was still the son of God. He's not taking that away. Yet somehow he says that after Jesus was exalted to the right hand of God, now he became acquired that title, son of God. You guys see that? So which one is it? Is it that he's always the son of God or that he acquired that title after his ascension on high? You guys with me? Okay. In order to answer that question, let's look into verse 5 because verse 5 really explained to us how Jesus acquired that title as the son of God that the author of Hebrews is talking about in verse 4. So far, you, you guys with me, right? Yeah. I didn't lose you yet. Okay. So it's, it's, it's complicated. I'm sorry. It's just, uh, it is what it is. We have to dig in and figure it out. Okay. So here's verse five. Again, we talked about this. For which of the angels ever say, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father and he shall be my son. Well, um, Obviously, verse 5 here, as we talk, the word 4, this just connects verse 5 to verse 4, and it elaborates. It makes verse 
5, more elaboration and explanation of verse 4. Now, let's start with this. Here is how verse 5 starts. Which of, to which of the angels he ever said, you know, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, you know, I will be his father and he shall be my son. Now, the angels in the Old Testament uh, were called sons of God. This is just very common. Um, we read about that multiple times in the book of Job. For example, when in Job chapter 1, we see that God sitting on the throne and his sons around him. And then Satan come in the middle and trying to accuse Job. And the, God surrounded by the sons here. That's just the angels, right? Over and over and over again, the angels are called sons of God. Not to mention that. Even people were called sons of God. Even in the New Testament, you and me are called children and sons of God, right? But in the Old Testament, sons of God is a very common uh, definition of the angels. Uh, we read about, but we never read about one single angel that God called him the son of God, all right? It's more of a plural format. All the angels are, belong to the category of sons of God. Even the angel of the Lord that we read about multiple times in the Old Testament would never read that this angel of the Lord is the Son of God. Amen? It's always plural. Every single time the angels of God are used as sons, it's always in the plural format, not in a single format. So obviously here, the author of Hebrews is asking a rhetorical question, right? For which of the angels he ever said, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, you know, he shall be my son and I will be his father. So obviously the author of Hebrews is singling Christ here and say he is far more superior than all the angels. Because even though the angels in plural as a category can be called sons of God, not a single one was called the son of God. Right? You guys with me? And he used the word for to which, and the word which here is singular in, in, in Greek as well, because again, he's saying that Jesus was single, signaled out from among all the angels to be the unique and the superior son of God, in spite of the fact all the angels were called sons of God in the Old Testament. Do you guys follow me? Yeah. And he is asking rhetorical question, emphasized by quoting two different verses from the Old Testament. The answer, obviously, of that rhetorical question is nobody. Right? Nobody was ever called among the angels the son of God. Now, now we're still trying to figure out if Jesus acquired that title or he already has or he's eternally been the son of God. In order for the author of Hebrews to back up his argument that there is not a single one of the angels in the Old Testament who were called the son of God, he quotes two different scriptures from the Old Testament. The first one is, you are my son, today I have begotten you, right? And that's a quote from Psalm 2, verse 7. And then he quotes from 1 Samuel chapter 7, um, the other scripture that says, I will be his father and he shall be my son. So let's look into that to understand what does it mean that Jesus has acquired that title, son of God. In, in Psalm 2, verse 7, Psalm 2 in general starts by talking about how the nations have raged against God and against his Messiah, and they're trying to break their yokes and trying to go free. That's pretty much verse 1 to 3. Verse 4 to 5, we read how God is laughing at their effort to try to break free from the authority of God, right? And God, in response to the nations raging and trying to break God's authority over them, God declares this. He says in verse 6, God declares, Yet I will sit who? My 
king on my holy hill of Zion. That's verse 6. You guys with me? So the context here is nations are raging. They want to break God's authority. God is responding by laughing at them, mocking their effort and saying, I don't care what you guys are going to do. Here's what I'm going to do. I will uh, sit my king on my holy hill in Zion. That's verse 6. In response to God's in response to God putting his own king. Now the king is responding back to God. God's anointing is responding back with verse 7. And he say, I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. You guys follow me? So that is the context of Psalm 2 verse 7. So let's think about that. The nations are raging. But God say, I am going to have my plans being done anyways. And in order for me to fulfill these plans, I'm going to uh, sit my own king in Zion. And the king respond back to God and say, I will declare the decree. You have said to me, you are my son today. I have begotten thee. So the idea here is this. On the day of the king's inauguration, God is putting his stamp of approval on the king so much so that God has declared the king to be his son, adopted him on that very day of his inauguration. You guys follow me? That's the, the idea of Psalm 2 verse 7. That God, here again, God approves of the king so much that he even declared him to be his own son. With me? Same idea. We see the same idea in 2 Samuel 7 to 14. And that's the second verse that the author of Hebrews is quoted here. We read in 2 Samuel 7 14. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. What is happening there? David wanted to build a temple for God. God sent the prophet Nathan to him and said, you should so much war. Don't worry about this. You're not going to do it. But I will have your own son, Solomon, build my own temple. And then God makes a covenant with David regarding his son, Solomon. One of these, the terms of the covenant start in verse 12. And it says like, something like this. I will sit, um, I will sit you up. Uh, I will sit up your seed after you. I will establish his kingdom. That's verse 12. And then it moves on all the terms of the covenant. And in verse 14 we say, we read, I will be his father and he shall be my son. So you guys follow that it's pretty much the same identical thought that we see in Psalm 2 verse 7. That, that God approves of the king so much so that he takes him in as his own son. And incur on him the title son of God. You guys with me? These are the two verses in the Old Testament that the author of Hebrews is using to back up his argument that Jesus has acquired the title Son of God. You with me so far? It's, I know it's heavy, so bear with me, and if you have questions, ask me. So here is what the author of Hebrews is saying. Just as in the Old Testament, in Psalm 2 verse 7, God's Stamp of approval of the king was that he adopted the king to be his own son, right? And just as in 1 Samuel 7, 14, God's stamp of approval on the king, on Solomon, that he, God will be his father and Solomon will be his son. And in both incidents, God given the title son of God metaphorically to the king and to Solomon. So in the New Testament, God's stamp of approval on the, the salvation that Jesus has accomplished on the cross is that God has 
has put on Jesus that very title, Son of God. In the same manner he did it in the Old Testament. You guys follow me? So, which one is it? Is it Jesus, the eternal Son of God, or Jesus acquired, inherited the title Son of God after his ascension? It's actually both. Jesus, in his nature, the Son of God from all eternity to all eternity. Amen? But because the author of Hebrews is saying that God lifted Jesus up all the way up because he has accomplished that perfect salvation and he put him far much higher than the angels, so much so that in the same way, God given the title Son of God to the king in Psalms chapter 2 and to Solomon in, in second Samuel verse 7, he also had given that title to Jesus as his stamp of, of approval that Jesus now has been inaugurated as king and that God approves the salvation plan that he has accomplished. You're with me? Yeah. It's complicated, I'm sorry, but it is, it is what the author of Hebrews is saying. Now, um, we talked about this. Um, it, it, this idea, what the author of Hebrews is telling us here, is further proved also by how Psalm 2 verse 7 was quoted in the, in the New Testament other than this incident here in Hebrews chapter 1. You guys with me? Psalm 2 verse 7 was quoted three times in the New Testament. That when God said to the king, you are my son, today I have begotten you. It was quoted three times in the New Testament. It was quoted in Acts 13.33. was quoted here in Hebrews chapter 1. And then it was quoted again in Hebrews 5.5. 5. So let's look at these incidences here. And you're going to see it's the same idea. It's God who, stamp, who put his stamp of approval of the, on the king in, in the book of Psalms, did the exact same thing and put his stamp of approval on Christ in the New Testament and have given Jesus the title Son of God. Acts 13, 33. Now Paul is talking, okay? And he's saying this, talking to the Israelites, to the nation of Israel, that God has fulfilled his promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus, okay? So in the context of the resurrection and the exaltation of Christ, he raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. How is Paul connected Psalm 2 with the resurrection of Christ? How is Paul connecting, you are my son, today I have begotten you, to the resurrection and the exaltation of Christ? It's the same principle. Paul is telling us that in the same way, God put his stamp of approval on the king in Psalm chapter 2 by declaring the king to be his son. God also has placed his stamp of approval on the salvation work that Christ has done when he raised him from the dead and seated him and exalted him all the way up to the right hand of God, so much so that he also declared him to be his son. That's the stamp of approval. Amen? We see the same verse, Psalm 2, verse 7, quoted again in Hebrews 5, 5. Look what the author of Hebrews is saying. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become high priest, but he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Again, it seems like that verse that the author of Hebrews quoted has nothing to do with Jesus being high priest, Right? He's saying Jesus became the Son of God, but how is it linked? How is Psalm 2, 7 back up the author of Hebrews' argument that Jesus has been glorified by becoming a high priest? Again, it's the same idea. 
the author of Hebrews is saying, just as in the same manner God approves of the king in Psalm chapter 2 by declaring the king to be his own son as God's stamp of approval over the king, so God glorified Christ and exalted him so much and placed his stamp of, of, of approval that Jesus now is the high priest seated at the right hand of God by declaring Jesus to be his own son. It is God who approved Jesus to be glorified that much and to become our high priest. You guys follow me? Good? Clear? Okay. That Psalm 2 verse 7, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Uh, when I grew up in Egypt, uh, we have some good preachers in Egypt, you guys. It's just like really, really great people. Uh, they really explain God's word, blow your mind away. One of the people who were preaching one time, he said, this verse seemed to be uh, backward, right? Because if, if today I have begotten you, that should come first because after he is begotten, now he can be the son, right? But this verse seems to be backward. You are my son. You're already my son. And then in spite of the fact that you are already my son, today I have begotten you, right? So it seems like there's two different sonship here. Even Psalm 2, independently from the New Testament, is still talking about, right? He's talking about some sort of like sonship that already exists and then sonship that just started today. You guys follow me? Right? That has nothing to do even with the New Testament, right? This phrase seems to be backward, and it's backward on, on purpose. It's the Holy Spirit trying to tell us that there is two different sonships. There is the eternal sonship of Christ, and there is the sonship that is kind of like God's stand-up approval on the perfect and complete work of Christ on the cross that God has given Jesus. Just as God, on the day of the inauguration of the king, will declare the king to be his son, God, in the same manner, uh, has given Jesus that title on the day of his inauguration when he sat at the right hand on majesty on high. Amen? So two different kinds of sonship, the eternal and the acquired sonship. But you can look at it so many ways. And that will lead me to that strange odd verse a little bit in, in Romans 1, 3 to 4. Here is what uh, Paul is saying. He's saying concerning, this is Romans 1, 3 to 4, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord. Concerning who? His Son, right? His son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born uh, of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Amen? Let's look at that verse. I wanted to preach this last Easter, but I didn't have time to study it. So I'm glad that I was able to do it this week. So here's your Easter message for next week. Okay, no. <laughs> All right. Um, look at this. He's saying that, verse 3, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So Paul here is definitely talking about the eternal sonship of Christ, that Jesus is the son of God from all eternity to all eternity, right? The strange part is what he said in verse 4, and declared to be, Jesus, was declared to be son of God with power. How? When he was raised from the dead. Now, the word declared here is a little bit, strange and it can be understood in two different ways it can be understood as declared announced and this is the king james the esv the new american standard bible they all have the word declared it's uh so that gives it a lot of weight right now it can also be appointed the word can be translated as he was appointed son of god by the resurrection from the dead 
we see the word appointed actually translated in Acts 17, 26, and 31. It's, for example, Paul also said that God has appointed Jesus to be judge of the living and the dead in Acts 17, 31. So Jesus was appointed judge because of God appointed him. And we can definitely understand Romans 1, 4 here that Jesus was appointed son of God by the resurrection from the dead. You guys with me? So the word can be understood in two ways. Either declared, as, as the King James, the ESV, the New American Standard Bible, or can be appointed, and that's the NIV. And I love the NIV. It's really sometimes go after the meaning rather than the wording. So the NIV says appoint. The Revised Standard Version say he was designated the son of God um, by the resurrection from the dead. So what is Paul trying to tell us here? That Jesus was declared or appointed son of God by the resurrection from the dead. Well, both sonship can be in play here. Paul can be simply saying that Jesus, the eternal sonship of Christ, was declared so powerfully by his resurrection from the dead when death could not contain him. That is a confirmation that Jesus is truly the eternal son of God who is equal to the father. That's one way of looking at it, right? But the other sonship, the, the functional sonship, the God's stamp of approval on Jesus by declaring him his son can also be in play here. Remember, it is Paul who linked Psalm 2-7 to the resurrection of Christ in Acts 13-33, right? So we need to know this. Paul understands Psalm 2 verse 7. You are my son. Today I have begotten you in the context, in the event that is linked to resurrection, right? So it is very well can be that Paul here is saying that Jesus was appointed the son of God as, as a stamp of approval. Jesus was giving that title when he was raised from the dead because this is how God... In as much as in the Old Testament, God approves the king by giving him that title. God also approved of the salvation that Jesus has accomplished from the de uh, on the cross, that he raised him up, seated him in the right hand. And in that process of exaltation, God put his stamp of approval by appointing Jesus son of God. You guys with me? Both of them can, can be in play. Which one Paul is thinking about? My guess is just like yours. Amen? I don't know. But both can be in play. I honestly would lean more toward the second one just because of Acts 13.33 and how Paul understood Psalm 2.7 in the context of the resurrection. But that's just a pure guess. I cannot prove it. All right. Let's just close with that thought and then we're all done. I know it's uh, complicated today, but um, it's good. Um, let's talk about the, about the word begotten, because here in Psalm 2-7, um, the author of the, the psalmist says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And the, the author of Hebrews, the New Testament again, applies that to Jesus three times. But in spite of the fact that the word begotten here, well, first of all, this is the only time in the Bible that actually the word begotten is applied to Christ. Amen. So the word begotten is never applied to Christ in terms of his eternal sonship. You guys with me? We actually, as Christian, Trinitarian, has shot ourselves in the foot when we follow the King James translation of, for example, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he did what? He gave 
His only begotten son. That's how the King James say, right? And that we just, it's wrong translation. We shot ourselves in the foot when we translated wrongly this way. The Greek monogenes doesn't have begotten or beget or coming to existence or anything like that. It really means the one and only, the unique son of God. This is how the NIV got it. And the NIV has it right. King James got it wrong. And we kind of shot ourselves in the foot by saying that Jesus as the eternal son of God somehow was begotten. And we're trying to come up with all different explanations that we don't even have to because he never was begotten in the first place as the eternal son of God. Amen. He, he is self-existing equal to the father in that manner. The father ne never begot the son at any point in time throughout eternity. Jesus is just self-existing just like the father. Amen. So again, we shot ourselves in the foot and we're trying to come up with all explanation to defend something that is not even right. Right. All right. So the word begotten can never be applied to um, Jesus' eternal sonship, but it's applied here or used here to Jesus' uh, functional sonship or God's stamp of approval on his, on his salvation plan. But even with that, we need to understand that it is a metaphor. This is not literally that God has actually begotten Jesus on the day of his re resurrection and ascension, right? Remember the whole idea, even from the Old Testament, Psalm 2, God is declaring his approval on that king by pronouncing on him that title, you are my son. In, in other words, God is saying, in a way, I am adopting you today. You're going to become my son today, but it doesn't mean that the king was not existing and he came to existence or begotten on that day of approval by God or inauguration as king. You guys follow me? So it is used metaphoric in, the, in, um, in Psalm 2. Obviously, that's also the intention of the author of Hebrews here. When he says that Jesus was begotten on the day of his ascension to the right hand of God, it's a metaphor that this is how God placed his stamp of approval on the sacrificial death of Christ by declaring him to be his son. It's a metaphor, not literal way of understanding the word begotten. You guys with me? So Jesus was never begotten eternally or functionally. He's just a self-existing son of God. Amen? Amen? Clear like mud. It's, it's hard, I'm sorry, but we just have to go through it, I know, but uh, I didn't know what to do. I didn't want to skip it, so let's, uh, <laughs> all right, let's close our eyes and pray.